The Wild Foundation, which is a secular group, defines wilderness this way. The most intact, undisturbed, wild, natural areas left on our planet. Those last truly wild places that humans do not control and have not developed with roads, pipelines, or other industrial infrastructure. Wilderness, the key idea is, it's a place where humans are not in control. Even non-Christians can recognize there are places on this planet in which you can go and become intimidated by the fact that we're not in control. The power of nature, the fact that we have not domesticated huge tracts of land is a reminder that we're not in control of everything. And the key concept of wilderness is that it's a place or a region where something else is in control besides us. Well, wilderness is an important place in the biblical story. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. It's a place where they very clearly are not in control. They can't provide food for themselves. They can't provide drink for themselves. Wilderness is a hard place in Israel. The rock wilderness is difficult. It's hard. Jesus, too, spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. A very difficult place to be because he's not in control. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And at the end of his wilderness time, Satan will come and tempt him. Now, wilderness is not only a literal, physical place that Israel and Jesus spend time. It also is a spiritual place. While Israel is physically in the wilderness, they are also spiritually in the wilderness. They are wandering around, not sure where they're going, not sure when it's going to be over. In the wilderness, Israel is being tempted to take control of an uncontrollable situation through their grumbling and complaining. Maybe we can get God to do this. Maybe we can get this to happen. Maybe we can make Moses do that. The wilderness is outside their control, yet they are tempted in the wilderness to try to establish control. Same for Jesus, not through grumbling and complaining. But in the wilderness, although it's a physical place for him, it's also a spiritual place. Jesus feels distant from the Father in the wilderness and Satan comes to him at the end of that experience to tempt him to take control. Turn these stones into bread. I'll give you these kingdoms this other way. Show yourself that you are truly from the Lord and jump off the top of this high peak. So too, wilderness is an experience for us as Christians. Yes, we may at some point find ourselves in a physical wilderness. But every single one of us will at some point, and perhaps multiple points in our life, find ourselves in a season of wilderness. A season in which we are not in control. Now look, we're never in control. But when you're in the season of wilderness, you feel that lack of control acutely. For many, it might be a health issue. A health issue that maybe has gone on for months or years or decades in which it feels like you're in the wilderness. There's nothing you can do to control your situation. For others, it might be a broken relationship. For others, it might be persecution that you are experiencing. It's not that we're never persecuted any other time, but there can be a specific season months or years at a time in which it feels like we're constantly being attacked 
for our faith. Maybe it's a season of overwhelming fear and doubt. The point is, is every single person who is a Christian will go through seasons of wilderness. Now, thank God, our whole Christian life is not lived in the wilderness. It's not designed to be lived in the wilderness. But there are seasons in which all of us feel distinctly that lack of control. Not only as individuals, but small groups can go through the wilderness. The church can go through a wilderness. It's even possible to think of being a Christian in America today as us entering into a wilderness experience. So while wilderness is a very physical place, it's also a very important spiritual place. Well, David too finds himself in the wilderness. Literally, he's in the wilderness. Some of the time he's running from Saul. Spiritually, he's in the wilderness the whole time he's on the run from Saul. After all, David is the rightful king of Israel, but he has no kingdom. He is the great hero, a hero of epic proportions, yet he is being hunted like a dog, like a villain of the state. He's living in the wilderness the whole time he's on the run from Saul. Now, the most salient feature of the wilderness experience is that it's confusing. It's true for every wilderness experience that you and I will ever have. There is a confusion because we're not in control. We can't see what the future holds. We don't know how we're going to get out of this situation. We don't know how things are going to work out. And every single one of us, when we go through the wilderness, experience that confusion. That's David's experience as well. See, up until this point, David has been doing great things. He's been making the morally right choices. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't kill Saul. Continue to do the right thing and God will reward that. But what about when you're in the wilderness experience and there's not a clear morally right thing to do? What if you're facing confusing questions in which there doesn't seem to be a right and a wrong? Yes, we know we're not supposed to kill our enemies. Yes, we know we're supposed to keep giving financially and continue to serve and do the right thing even in the middle of the wilderness. But what about those choices where it's not clear cut what we're supposed to do? For example, if your job right now is your wilderness, should you stay at it? Should you quit? Should you start looking for another job? Should you try to deal with the situation? What are we supposed to do? All of those could be morally right answers or right good things to do. Who knows which one to do? If it's a financial situation that's currently your wilderness, should you take on a second job? Should you move to a smaller home? Should you try to cut spending? Should you take out a loan? Should you do nothing? These are confusing choices. There's not an absolute right or wrong to do with these choices. What are we supposed to do? If your wilderness is a broken relationship, are you supposed to address it? Are you supposed to go and talk to that person? Are you supposed to pursue that person? Are you supposed to wait? How forceful should you be? How much should you go after this? These are hard choices. And one of the problems with the wilderness, we just don't know what to do. Yes, we understand when there are morally right and wrong things what we should do. But what about when it's just confusing? Should I go left? Should I go right? Well, this morning we want to talk about that subject but do so from God's word. So take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 27, if you will. 1 Samuel 27. If you need a Bible, there's one under your seat or in the rack in front of you. That's page 211 in those Bibles. 
We're going to cover a lot of ground today. 1 Samuel 27 through 30. So 27, 28, 29, and 30. We're covering these together because it's all one story. And what it has in common is the same thread. David is in the wilderness of running from Saul. And he's facing some confusing choices. Should I go left? Should I go right? What am I supposed to do? We pick up the story in 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 to 4. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So at this point in the story, David's been on the run from Saul for some time. And we can sort of feel that the stress has been building, that this has been a giant burden for David to bear. What we find out from this passage, not only does David have 600 men that he's responsible for, everybody's got a family that they brought with them. Now imagine the stress of being responsible for the logistics of trying to move this group of a couple of thousand people. Anytime you hear word that Saul is coming, you got to quick pack up camp. We got to, we got to race to the next spot. Always thinking your lives are in danger, not just your lives, but the lives of your wives and your children. The stress is getting to David. And so David says, look, there's got to be something we can do about this. So he comes up with this idea and he says, well, you know, if we went to Philistine, if we went to Philistia, Saul's not going to look for me there. That's enemy territory. So David packs everybody up. He goes to Philistia. He finds Achish, the king of Gath, and Achish is like, yeah, you can stay here. He stays in Gath for a little while, and Achish says, let me give you a little town of your own called Ziklag. You can go and stay there. And we find out from verse number four that David was right. Saul stops pursuing him. And finally, David can sort of settle into a bit of a normal life. For the first time since he went racing, out of, uh, racing away from Saul. He can settle into a bit of a normal life and you can kind of see the patterns of life with the wives and the children and the men sort of establishing a bit of a normal. And what a relief it must have been that Saul's Saul's no longer looking for him. Well, the story continues in verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area... He did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Now at this point, it seems like, okay, Saul's not, or David's not yet king, but he might be doing some good things for the nation of Israel. After all, he's having this opportunity to put these 600 men to some good use. They're fighting against their enemies. When David becomes king, he's going to have to deal with these enemies around him. And right now, through sort of guerrilla warfare, he's able not only to experience some level of peace from Saul, he's able to go out and seemingly accomplish some good stuff against their enemies. 
But if you're like me, there's something disconcerting about this story as well. David's slaughtering everybody. Like he's killing all of the men and the women and presumably the children. Now, there are a few occasions in the Bible where God does order an Israelite leader to do this, but they are very, very rare. And they are for very, very stated, specific reasons. Yet here's David slaughtering everybody. And in addition to that, he's lying to Achish. Okay? Achish, get what he's saying. He's saying, look, hey, David, where are you going raiding today? Well, David has been raiding in a place he can't tell Achish he's raiding. That's why he's killing everybody. So he says to him, oh, I've been going into Israel. That's what the Negev of Judah, the Negev of Jeremiah, those are places in Israel. And David is giving the impression, he's lying, but he's giving the impression that he's actually attacking his own people and that's where he's getting all this stuff from. Well, Lachish hears this and thinks, look, if this guy's attacking his own people, they must hate him. I mean, who's going to like this guy? He's going to be my servant forever. And so we pick up the story, chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, if the last story I just told you was slightly confusing... This is even more discomforting. Okay, I get David fighting against the enemies. But now he's being asked to go fight against his own people. Does anybody have a problem with that? That seems a little bit like that's not what's supposed to happen. Like can David, who's supposed to be Israel's future king, actually attack Israel with the Philistines? Can that be a good thing? If he does that, would his people ever accept him? But then on the other hand, what, what choice does David have? If he says no to Achish, what's Achish going to know? He's been lying the whole time. If he says yes to Achish, well, now he's stuck. He's got to go fight against his own people. What's he going to do? This is confusing. This is difficult. This is a hard choice. But maybe, see where it says, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. That's kind of a vague phrase. Maybe what David is planning is, is, okay, Akish, yeah, we'll go to battle together. And when we get there, you're going to see what I can do. Because after all, he's been lying to Akish the whole time. So maybe he's planning on going into battle with the Philistines only to turn on them in the midst of battle. But we don't know if that's the case. He doesn't really say. And the text never tells us. It's still confusing. Well, there's one group who's pretty sure they know what David is thinking. And that's the other Philistine rulers. When Achish shows up with David and his 600 men, the other Philistine rulers look at him and like, what are you thinking? <laughs> How in the world could this possibly be a good idea? Do you not know who this is? This is David. He's killed more Philistines than anybody else in history. And now you want to bring him and a small army of his people with us into battle? Oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We'll just put them right at the back. That would be a great idea. Yeah, we'll have Israelites in front of us and Israelites. That's great. Good thinking, Akish. Well done. 
So they're like, no way, absolutely not, not going to happen. Send him home. So Achish has to break the news to David that he's not going to battle with them. So we pick up the story, chapter 29, verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. (laughs) And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done, asked David? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Now, wait a second. (laughs) David's off the hook here. He doesn't have to go and fight his own people. He's got an easy out. Why is he protesting? Why is he trying to talk Achish into letting him go? Has he actually decided that if he sides with the Philistines and fights against Saul and Saul loses, that maybe that will help him become king faster? Has bitterness taken over in his heart? Is he tired of running from Saul? And he's like, well, I can't kill him myself, but if I help his enemies kill him, then that's okay. Has he grown fond of Achish? Does he actually want to serve him and be his bodyguard? What's going on here? Well, it doesn't say. It's just getting more and more confusing. David keeps making choices. But we're not told exactly what his motives are or why he's saying, and it never says anywhere in the story. And so we descend into further confusion. What is going on? Well, our story takes a final turn in chapter 30. Remember, the Philistines were gathering together for war. That means that David and his 600 men have to leave Ziklag where they're staying and go meet the rest of the Philistines. That takes some time. While they're mustering a camp to get ready for war, the Amalekites are like, hey, Philistines are going to war with the Israelites. You know who's going to guarantee to be involved? David, either as an Israelite or a Philistine. He's going to be on one side or the other. So that means his town is going to be unprotected. And so the Amalekites, who David has been raiding against, think, hey, this is a good time to go pay him back. And so we pick up the story in verse 3, chapter 30, verse 3. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Now, as an aside, I'm sure they were bitter in spirit because of their wives too, but clearly uh, they're bitter in spirit at least because their sons and daughters have been captured. But seriously, this is a bad moment in David's life. I would say this is the worst moment of his life, of his entire life. Think of where he's at. All his, uh, the wives, the children, all the property is gone. The city he's been staying in has been burned. His men hate him. They are talking seriously about stoning him. This is the worst day 
in David's life. And the problem is, whose fault is it? It's David's. He's led him here. This has been his choice. He's made these choices. And what we realize finally at the end of this story is that that very first decision to go into Philistia was a bad one in the first place. Yes, it's true that it stopped Saul from looking for him. David was absolutely right on that way. But what David couldn't take into account was the unintended consequences of his choice. Apparently, David never thought to himself, hey, look, if I go and live in Philistia, how am I going to feed all these people? And so when he gets there, he's got to make another choice. We're going to have to start raiding. Well, who are we going to raid? Well, we're clearly going to raid the enemy. The problem is we're staying with the enemy. So we got to lie to the enemy king to say we're actually raiding against Israel. But that means a problem. What if any survivors go and actually tell the king? What's David going to do then? So he's got to decide, well, we got to kill all those people. It never dawns on David he's going to end up in this situation. It also never dawns on David. If you're living in enemy territory under the protection of an enemy king, that enemy king might want something in return. Meaning if that enemy king's going off the war, he may want you to join him and you may end up having to fight against your own people. That never dawned on David. Nor did it dawn on David when he was making this decision. Hey, look, if I go to Philistia, yes, I'm going to be safe from Saul. But if I leave my village to go anywhere, the villagers are going to be in greater danger because we're in enemy territory. If it was simply a town in Israel, there would have been other towns and other people around to help protect. But David set up camp in enemy territory. And so only at the end do we realize this was a really, really bad decision that David made to move into Philistia. Well, with that in mind, turn back to chapter 27, verse number one, and let's examine David's decision-making process as in the middle of the wilderness, faced with these confusing choices, he's made the wrong choice. Hindsight is twenty twenty. By chapter 30, we know he's wrong. Let's go back now and examine chapter 27, and see if we can discover the problem with his thinking. Chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. First red flag. See where it says, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul? Who's been protecting him from the hand of Saul? God asks, in which country has God been doing this? In Israel. Everywhere that David has gone, God has protected him. Even when Saul thinks he's got David. I got him trapped in Keilah. He's delivered into my hand. The text said, but God would not deliver David into Saul's hand. Even when David is running around the mountain with his army on one side and Saul's coming around the other side and they've almost caught them at that moment, God says, oh, Philistines, you need to go attack right now. And they attack and Saul has to call off the chase. And David gets away. This whole time, David has been delivered from Saul's hands. Why now does David think that suddenly God is going to give him over? Second red flag. I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. That word destroy, same word that David uses in chapter 26 to say what God is going to do to Saul. David says, hey, look. You can do what you want. I'm going to do the right thing. But know this, Saul, the way you're acting, God is going to destroy you. 
Now he's turned that language on himself. Why? He's lost faith. It happens in the wilderness, doesn't it? Yeah, God can show up. God can rescue us. God can do amazing things. But there's some days we wake up and think, he's not going to do it again. There's some days we wake up and think, this is all going to turn out badly. And David, just like you and I, in the middle of the wilderness, he's lost faith. Third red flag. And this one you might not have caught. But notice the opening phrase. David thought to himself. (laughs) Literally, it means David said to his heart. And the picture here is that David is having an inner dialogue with himself. That he's having this conversation saying to himself, man, how much more can we take of this? How much longer are we going to be in this wilderness? How much longer are we going to be on the run from Saul? Look, what else can I do? I've already not killed him twice. When is God going to show? Maybe he's not going to show up. Maybe we've used up our last chip. Oh no, God has rescued us. Yeah, but what if he doesn't come the next time? All it takes is one time and then we're dead. No, but God will show up. Well, what if we do something wrong and God decides not to protect us? What if we mess up and God's not here? What about going to Philistia? Wouldn't we be safe there? Well, that that sounds like human wisdom, but didn't God give us human wisdom? Aren't we supposed to use human wisdom to make decisions if we have a way to solve this problem? I mean, after all, we got all these women, all these children. Shouldn't we try to do what's best for them? If we go to Philistia, surely Saul's not going to follow us there. Aren't we supposed to use our human wisdom? Isn't that why God gave it to us? He's having a dialogue with himself and he talks himself into this decision. Now, the reason why, if you're like me, we just blew by that phrase is because that's what we do all the time. That doesn't seem abnormal to us whatsoever. But you might want to know that this is the only time in all of Scripture this phrase is applied to David. We know the most about David, his goings, his comings, why he went here, when he moved there, all these details, more than we have about anybody else. And only one time in all of the David narrative is it ever said David thought to himself. How does David normally make decisions? Well, let me show you a few passages while he's been running from Saul that lead up to this. Chapter 22, he's on the run from Saul. It says, the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. He had gone to Moab to stay there and the prophet came to him and said, don't stay here, go. So David left and went. God is directing him through the prophet. It says in chapter 22, verse 15, was that the first day I inquired of God for him? Of course not. This is Ahimelech, the priest. And Saul is interviewing him saying, interrogating him, why in the world did you inquire of God for David? And Ahimelech says to Saul, David, I inquire of God for him all the time. That's what this guy does. Yeah, how did I know he was on the run from you? But the very first thing David does when he's running from Saul, he goes and inquires of the Lord. Chapter 23, David inquired of the Lord. The Lord answered him. Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him. Verses 10 through 12, David says, will Saul come down as your servant is hurt? O Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. How's David been making choices up to this point? He's been asking God. He's been inquiring of the Lord and only against that backdrop do you read. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Does this statement David thought to himself seem so bad? 
David's normal practice has been, God, what am I supposed to do? Now, look, these are not moral choices. He's asking, am I supposed to go to Keilah? Am I supposed to go back to Judah? These are not moral choices. When it's time to kill Saul or not kill Saul, he doesn't inquire of the Lord. It's a moral choice. He knows the right thing to do. But these other choices, where am I supposed to live? Where are we supposed to go? How far are we supposed to run? His normal pattern is to ask the Lord, inquire of the Lord. And in chapter 27, the huge red flag is, is instead of inquiring of the Lord, he thought to himself. Which leads to the biggest red flag of this whole story. Whose name have I not mentioned once when I read 27, 28, 29, and 30? There was a lot of verses I read. Whose name did I not mention once? God's. I didn't mention God's name once. Go back and read these chapters. He's not in there. He's mentioned one time in an offhanded way by Achish, not by David. Four chapters. God's not mentioned once in the stories I read to you. Now, God's still there. He's just behind the scenes. Why? Because David wants to drive the ship. David has taken over control. He's starting to make the decisions. And now all of a sudden, God is starting to recede from view. See, the problem is David makes that first decision. Let's move to Philistia. Now he's got to go, well, how are we going to get food? Well, I've got to start raiding people. And now he's got, in order to make that decision work, he's got to start killing everybody. Now he's got to lie to people. Now he's got to go into the army for the Philistines. Now he finds out that his village has been destroyed. Along the way, David keeps trying to rescue his first decision. And God keeps saying to him, okay, look, hey, go ahead. You want to run the show? Go ahead. And God disappears from the scene. He moves into the background. And David is the one in control until finally David reaches a point where the absolute bitterness he realizes, what in the world was I thinking? How did it get to this point? I was making decisions. I thought they were good decisions. How did I get to this point? So what's the point for you and I today? The wilderness is a hard place to live. It's a hard place to be. And God can rescue us out of the wilderness time and time again. But there's always this temptation. How do I get out? How do I plot my own course out? We think to ourselves, look, there's an opening. If I would just take that. And you know what? We're probably going to be right. We think if we do that, that will solve this problem. But what we don't know is the unintended consequences that will have the domino effect from that decision. David is right. Saul stops looking for him. That's what he thought. That's what happened. David is smart. But nobody's smart enough to navigate through the wilderness. Nobody's smart enough to know if I move to Philistia, then I'm going to have a food problem. If I got a food problem, then I got a witness problem. If I got a witness problem, I have a king problem. If I got a king problem, then I'm going to have a, a wife and children problem. David can't figure all of that out. And so the point to you and I is that if you're in the wilderness right now and you're faced with this choice, my job is my wilderness. Should I quit? Should I stay? 
Should I do something about it? If it's a relationship issue, how much am I supposed to pursue this? How much am I supposed to let it go? How much abuse am I supposed to take? How much of this should I put up with? If you're in that kind of situation, the real temptation is, look, I can figure this out. I know a way to get the bullying at school to stop. I know a way to help my child who's experiencing that bully. Someone comes to you and says, you're in financial trouble. I've got a plan for you. Steps one through eight, do these. And we think to ourselves, that sounds good. I should do that. And the temptation, is plot our own course out of the wilderness. There's a way out. Let's find it. And the point of this story to us today is don't do that. If you and I are in the wilderness today, it's because God put us there. Because God wants to show himself to us in a unique way. God wants to lead and guide us. Trust him. If you have a choice you have to make, quit the job, stay at the job, talk to the person, not talk to the person. Ask the Lord. This is why it says in James, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all freely without getting mad. The Bible doesn't say make a list of pros and cons and make the best possible choice and live with the consequences. That's not what it says to do. What it says to do is ask the Lord. He'll tell you. The Bible's very clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. You say, but what if I already started making choices on my own? What if I'm not in chapter 27? What if I'm in chapter 30? I would have loved to hear this sermon two years ago. But I already started to make my choices and I have begun to realize that my life is confused. That that first choice I made seemed like a good choice, but every choice I've been making since I've been trying to justify that first choice or make that first choice work or make my plan work. And you know what? You're right. I am so confused. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. I don't know what decision to make. Maybe you've actually reached the point that David is in chapter 30 where the whole thing's blown up. You can connect the dots now in hindsight. But you're sitting there all alone. Everybody has abandoned you. Everything has gone wrong. The worst period of your life. Saying, why didn't you tell me this a couple of years ago? If that's your situation today, what do you do? Well, what did David do? Back to chapter 30 for our close. Chapter 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. And then here's the phrase. But David found strength in the Lord his God. At this point, God re-enters the narrative. Go back and read these chapters for yourself. God is absent until this moment. And here he re-enters the story. What do you do and what do I do if we're in this situation where we have been making decisions, thinking to ourselves, using human wisdom, and it's gone pear-shaped, it's gone bad? Find strength in the Lord. That means two things. One, confess to the Lord that we've been trying to drive this ship. Say, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I, I, I knew better. I knew better, but I did it anyway. Lord, I, have mercy on me. I'm sorry. I thought I could get us out of this. I should have waited for you. Lord, I thought I knew best how to solve this problem, 
but I didn't. To find strength in the Lord is to be honest with him and say, you know what? I can't control the wilderness. I can't save myself. I've tried. I've made the best decisions humans know how to make and they're not good enough. That's the point of the wilderness. The point of the wilderness is even if you make the absolute best human decisions, you can't control the wilderness. And so to find strength in the Lord is to confess and say, you know what? I've tried to rescue myself and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've insulted you this way. I'm sorry that I've ignored you this way. It's to take responsibility. You know what? My life has fallen apart and it's my fault. The second thing that finding your strength in the Lord means. Not only to confess, but to beg God for mercy. Because you know the great things? We make some really bad choices. They look great at the time. Nobody makes bad choices at the time. But in hindsight... They are train wrecks. But you know what? God's mercy endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. We may have run the ship aground, but he can get it sailing again. We may have backed ourselves into a corner, but he can get... As long as we still have breath, there is hope. And so David is absolutely alone. He is at the lowest possible point. Everybody in the world is either captured or hates him. He's got nobody to turn to. And so he turns to the Lord and says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And how does he express that he wants mercy from God? Well, look what he does next. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and David did what? Inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Look at God's mercy. Isn't that amazing? This is all David's fault. Every single bit of this is David's fault. But God is kind. He's generous. He's merciful. And David says, look, I'm sorry, Lord. I've been making all the wrong decisions for a long time. Will you come and start making these decisions again? Does God get mad at him? Does God go over all of David's faults? Does God beat him down? No, because James says if anybody lacks wisdom, you mean sinners? You mean people who've made mistakes? You mean you and I? Yes, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all freely without finding fault, without holding grudges. This is what God does. He's merciful. And David says, I don't know how to drive this ship. I have run us aground. Please get us out of here. And you know what God does? David doesn't deserve a minute of what God's going to do for him. Now, there's still consequences from David's actions. They're not all eliminated. But David lets go of the steering wheel and lets God steer the ship. And in chapter 30, God begins to do immeasurably more than David could have ever thought. David's been making choices to try to rescue his original first decision. He's throwing good money after bad. But at this point, he says, look, I'm done. I'm spent. I'm broke. I got nothing. And when he finally hands it over to God, God begins to steer the ship. I love this story about David. The reason I love this story about David is David is a mighty hero of the faith. I mean, David has done some world record epic kinds of things. The David, the not killing Saul, the being anointed king. I mean, this guy is a world-class biblical hero. But this is a mighty fall. Now, I know David's got his faults, and I'm glad for the story about Bathsheba. I'm not glad for it, but I'm glad to know about the story of Bathsheba. I know about the story with the census. David makes huge mistakes in both those cases. 
But you know, this is the story of David's that I most resonate with. Because I know what this is like. I know what it's like to be in the wilderness. You want desperately to get out. And hey, we do have wisdom. Why not figure this thing out? Why not chart our own course? Why not try to make it happen on our own? And you know what? The census and, and, and Bathsheba, they have long-standing consequences, but they feel like a sort of one-time choice. David lives in this wilderness for a year and four months. This piece of the story. Making bad choice after bad choice. In the darkness and the confusion and saying, where is God? And you know what? I can connect with this. I can relate to this. I have woken up one morning and said, where did God go? Like he was running things. And suddenly, and then I realized, oh yeah, then I started running things. Then I started making, and I should know better. And so I re- when I read this story, I think, man, I can connect to David on this. But you know what else? When I read this story, I think, we got a merciful God. We have a merciful Father. And if God's willing to rescue David, I mean, David slaughtered a bunch of people. If God's willing to rescue David out of this, certainly he's going to come and help me. Certainly if I just let go of the steering wheel and ask him to take over, he's going to guide the ship back on course. And so I'm so encouraged by this. And I'm, and I'm betting that every single person in this room knows what this is like to try to take matters into our own hands, to steer the ship through the wilderness on our own, only to reach the point of saying, what was I thinking? Be encouraged. God's merciful. His mercies are new every morning. They are bigger than any choice we could ever make. If you're currently steering in the wrong direction, stop. Let it go. Give it back over to God. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, your mercy is amazing. We do not deserve your help. David did not. You should have thrown David away. But you, even when we are faithless, you are faithful. God, there isn't a person in this room who you shouldn't have thrown away. We have made silly choices, foolish choices. But God, you are kind and merciful and good. And so, Lord, I just praise your name. And I pray for anybody in this room who's in the wilderness right now. Oh, the temptation is great. Oh, the temptation is hard not to plot the way out. Please, Lord, let us hear your spirit speaking to us today, telling us to trust you. And God, if we have made choices that have simply dug the hole deeper, Lord, I pray that each of us would hear your call of mercy, calling us, come back, come back. Let me help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.